Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in American Studies. I am the co-host of the channel, Lillian Barger. This is a special edition in cooperation with the Society for U.S. Intellectual History. Christopher Grasso is professor of history at the College of William and Mary. His book, Skepticism in American Faith, From the Revolution to the Civil War, published by Oxford University Press, explores tensions and ongoing dialogue between religious faith and skepticism and fear over how it would shape the character of the nation. Religious promoters and detractors both appeal to enlightened reason and the need for social reform. Shop owners, ministers, freethinkers, mystics, and soldiers had to deal with enlightened challenges to faith in God, intellectually and personally. Grasso moves beyond public debates to demonstrate how many ordinary people wrestled with doubt at a time when legions of others participated in revivals mission work, moral reform, and establishing churches. Personal and political struggles ultimately led to a religious nationalism on the part of some and a civic religion on the part of others. The book adds needed detail and texture to the history of how religion and the politics converged, one in which the dominance of Protestantism in America was not as secure as we often understand it. Here is my conversation with Christopher Grasso. Welcome, Christopher Grasso, to the show. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for coming on to discuss your book. It's it's full of uh, details and questions and things that are just pretty amazing, I think. Uh, Before we get to talking about the book, though, I would like for you to tell us about yourself and how you came to write Skepticism in American Faith. Well, um, I was in graduate school, so it goes back a long time. This book was uh, about 20 years in the making, actually. Because uh, I first came upon the idea when I was researching my dissertation and then first book, um, which was called A Speaking Aristocracy. And it was basically about um, intellectual and religious life in 18th century New England. And I came across the papers of Ezra Stiles, who was a mid-century, late 18th century clergyman and then a president of Yale. Um, Edmund Morgan, a famous historian, wrote, uh, you know, very good biography of Styles, but I was digging around in the, the voluminous Styles records, and I came across him struggling with his own issues of faith, uh, religious faith. And he, here he is, a the son of a Puritan or post-Puritan clergyman, himself a divinity student, a tutor at Yale College, but he's reading all this new literature. He's reading the new science. He's reading things we would call the early British Enlightenment in this new cache of books that the library had just gotten. And he develops some serious questions about the faith, disturbing questions for him, since he wanted to be a minister, and he struggles mightily with it. Um, But then, you know, he he gets some illness. I'm not sure what he had, but he thought he was on his deathbed, and the, the local minister comes to visit him. But he would not confess his doubts, even at that moment. He wouldn't speak it to anyone. Here was basically a closeted religious skeptic, afraid 
even on what he thought might be his death, to confess that he doubted um, the Christian truths, the Christian common sense that he had learned. He struggled for a few more years, uh, worked his way back to a liberal faith, and then gradually toward a more evangelical faith. But then um, right after the American Revolution, he published a very famous sermon at the time uh, where he worried about not just the personal and kind of psychological turmoil that struggles with religious questioning could cause, but its political and social threat um, at the time or right at the conclusion of the American Revolution. And I said, wow, this is a, this is a very interesting idea. Um, I wonder how many other people struggled like him. I wondered how many others were um, felt that they had to main, you know, keep their true identities as religious skeptics in the closet. Um, how many others saw this um, the, the kind of broad social, economic, intellectual, and political challenges that this kind of religious skepticism would cause? So oh, I finished my first book, I got my first job, and I started looking around in the archives. And of course, it was one of those things where the more you look, the more you find. It was not a topic that most religious histories of the period I decided to look at, which is basically from the American Revolution to the Civil War. Not a lot of um, scholars were focusing on this at all. The, the, the basic line was that, well, there were some of these um, Enlightenment characters like uh, you know Jefferson and Franklin and people like that who are leaning more toward deism. Um, some of them are even more skeptical than that, Ethan Allen. But... Um, they basically faded away or that, that type of, of thinking faded away with what was called the, the second great awakening, this um, upsurge of evangelical revivalism in the early 19th century. And the subsequent story really is about this, the Christianization of American society, the, the, the strength of the Christian churches um, marching on. So, I was surprised at the simply the amount of discussion that I found, both discussion of people's personal lives and um, out in the public sphere, people talking about these questions, wrestling with questions of doubt and faith. And for the next many years, I you know went from archive to archive, and I read a lot of material. And uh, the book took as long as it did in part because I was editor of the William and Mary Quarterly for 13 of those years, and that, that was very much a full-time job. Um, but that's where the, you know the, the project began, and that's how it progressed. And basically, it's now organized in four parts. Um, the first part talks about revolutions, referring to the American and the French revolutions, and then conceptions of the Enlightenment, and then on to later in the 19th century, a, a section on reforms, and then finally, sacred causes, which is about you know, how both skepticism and faith uh, affected how people thought of the Civil War. So that's where the book came from, and that's how it ended up being structured. Well, Christopher, I, you know, I have always, when I started uh, studying American religious history myself, I was very interested right away in the question of unbelief, because I think you can you can't really understand religion if you don't understand the opposite. You know, if you don't, it can't hard to understand belief if you don't understand doubt and unbelief. And I, I think that you have to understand, and that's why I was very excited about your book. Um, there's not been a lot done about it with it, with that topic. And one of the things that you do 
is you you do your book is very layered. You have intellectual history in there. You have political history, and then on top of that, you're 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 doing a social history because you're talking about people's personal experience. Why did you change the pick that strategy? You could have just stayed with, you know, intellectual texts and those arguments, those debates, but you went to real life. You know, uh, tell me why you. Um, chose that strategy yeah that that's interesting i guess um i guess by training i was more of an intellectual historian when i started out um in graduate school i worked on the works of jonathan edwards did a lot of work on edwards and people like that but in some of it was that just the the very nature of the sources i was looking at uh, people reflecting in diaries people writing in journals um and although a lot of the the stories of say a conversion of someone from skepticism to faith or from faith to skepticism, you know, had similar outlines. So much of it depended on them being embedded in very particular personal and social circumstances. And I guess that's one of the the main points that I wanted to make is that it was absolutely interwoven with um, their daily lives. And it's not so much a book that makes uh, an argument about you know moving we as a nation moving from one point to another becoming more secular or more skeptical in 1865 than they were in 1776 or something like that. Um, it very much depended on place, on time, uh, different circumstances, and what fascinated me the most was seeing these questions interwoven with. Um, the daily lives of the people I was looking at. And it, it's, you know, there are people we would call intellectuals or ministers, certainly, but there are a lot of people that aren't those things that are shoemakers or, or um, you know, just lawyers or, you know, regular people who are wrestling with these, these different topics. And I wanted to get as much as the, the evidence would allow um, at those things. Now, granted, uh, if you know, you look in the notes of my book, a lot of this stuff is um, how those experiences are framed by public discussions. That is how newspapers and magazines and fiction and all of those things kind of create an atmosphere in which people ask these questions. So it's not just people sitting alone in their studies, nor is it about um, just intellectuals arguing, you know, throwing treatises at each other, but it it tries to range, um, as you say, through these different layers and and trace um, the dialogue of skepticism and faith um, between these different layers. You have a lot of different, very interesting people in your in your book. Most of them don't really come off that well, <laughs> but anyway. Uh, but they're very interesting, and they seem to be like a little microcosm of what was happening with the whole nation. It wasn't just a personal problem. It, was, it seemed like the way you were uh, placing these people in a broader context, that they were reflecting uh, struggles, of, you know, writ large about what the, who the nation was and what was its identity, because America was still trying to figure out who are we and what are we going to be. And so I found it very, very interesting. Why is it, do you think, that unbelief uh, or doubt or this complication of religion has not received as much attention as it should have? Well, I think um, there are several reasons for that. I think one of them is kind of the 
the new religious history that came up was doing precisely the kind of work that you're just describing, but paying close attention to the daily lives of ordinary people. Uh, that moved American religious history from just a focus on the churches um, and the church doctrines and you know the theologians. It moved it from people like them to the daily lives of ordinary people, um, you know, ordinary Methodists and Baptists and Episcopalians and so on, um, and tried to tell their stories. And a lot of their stories had to do with frontier revivalism and great awakenings and you know the the upsurge in in religious reform movements and all the rest. And I think that's that's all to the good. And you know the focus on what what has been called lived religion. That is religion embedded in the daily practices and daily lives of ordinary people. I think that's a great thing. And, and But I was saying that all this attention to that has kind of obscured some of the people who stood outside um, the churches, who, who did not affiliate, who perhaps were not just indifferent. And there's another kind of bias that comes into the literature as well, where they assume that, well, you know, skepticism, this kind of elaborated um, intellectual disagreement with truth claims made by religion, that that's really just something for, for intellectuals. And, you know, the ordinary folks, the farmers and so on who stayed away from church, they're, they're not skeptical so much as indifferent. And I don't think that's fair. I mean, because I saw lots of people who, you know, not in the same terms, they're not reading Kant and they're not reading Locke, but they are struggling with these issues about what is true and what is not true, what evidence we can trust, what we can't trust, they're wrestling with these same kinds of things. Sometimes they're having discussions by tavern firesides, and you only get a brief reflection of these sorts of things in in what they write down or what they put in a letter or what what they put in a diary. But that's why I kind of, you know, tongue partially in cheek, talk about lived ear religion, that, that the, the skeptical and the doubters and the dissenters need to be given that same treatment that religious historians have done so well with when they look at ordinary religious believers. Um, so that, that's one issue. I think another one is that, you know, in sheer numbers, and as I say in the beginning of the book, some of the people I talk about acknowledge that there aren't a lot of, there aren't, you know, many public religious skeptics. That is people coming out and publishing or standing up in front of a crowd and saying, I don't believe in the Bible. I don't believe in what the churches say. I don't believe that your religious experience is really a genuine contact with the supernatural. There are not a lot of these people, and there are not a lot of them in part because it was dangerous to be some of those people. Um, But many commentators worried that there were lots of people who were quietly skeptical, who were staying away from church for reasons, again, that weren't just because they were indifferent, but because they had serious doubts. And they talk about this subterranean reservoir of doubt that they constantly worried about. Now, it, it was difficult for me to negotiate how much of this they are imagining, how much they are paranoid about, and how much um, was really there. But the more that I looked around, the more I was convinced that there was a lot of religious doubt really there, that um, the basic kind of Protestant truth claims were not taken as common sense by the majority of the people, as you sometimes see in the literature. And most importantly, that this dialogue continued, this conversation continued, uh, sometimes as a a vocal public argument, sometimes as a quiet discussion among friends, sometimes as just um, someone reading books or pamphlets quietly by him or herself in their studies, but it continued right through the whole period. 
Um, so one of the things I was trying to do with this book was to draw more attention to that and, and raise just some questions we have about some of the assumptions when we make larger generalizations about, oh, you know, the Enlightenment deists fall away with the generation of Jefferson and we really don't see them coming back, you know, for the rest of the 19th century. Well, that's just not true. People are still reading even, even Paine's um, Age of Reason. Um, you know, for uh, one example that I, that I don't use in the book, but I, I often think of or, or speak about um, is John Brown. You know, we hear about John Brown and his, his raid on Harper's Ferry. And we know that John Brown was motivated by you know, this kind of rock-ribbed Calvinism. And that's all true. He absolutely was. He was anti-slavery and it was based on his, his firm Calvinistic convictions. But that wasn't true for all the people in the fellow raiders at Harper's Ferry, that some of them a week or two weeks before the raid itself were passing around and talking about Paine's Age of Reason. That even there, even at that moment that we think of as this kind of this assertion of a, a kind of reformist Calvinism against the sin of slavery, even in that moment, we see the dialogue of skepticism and faith going on. So I wanted to restore at least some of those moments to the broader story of, of American religious history in this period. Well, you have a, a lot of really interesting characters, like I said, and, and a lot of uh, a lot of people who could be compared uh, or in, in opposition to each other, like Sarah Jones and Ernestine Rose, two women. You had uh, Thomas Cooper and Elihu Palmer and Orestes Brownson, John Kelso. These are these are fascinating characters all by themselves, which would make a, you know each of these people would make a book all by themselves. Uh, but before I want to get into some definitions here. Most people have heard about deism. Most people uh, understand that deism was a thing uh, around the revolutionary time. How would you def- how would you define deism, and how would you where would you place it in the wake of the revolution? Well, deism is often um, and and. Yeah, I, I, before I answer this question, and I will, um, I have to say that I was m- very much interested in how my historical subjects are defining these terms, and because I think that a lot of the, you know, how people are characterized and that the names they used are politically fraught questions, and what a what a deism meant or who a deist was um, was a fraught issue at the time, and people defined it differently. I have I have one passage in the book where I think it's in the late 1780s or early 1790s where they're talking about deists. And, you know, one writer was saying, well, you know, a few years ago, um, deism used to mean someone who believes in God. And that would include Christians and would include people who just believed in a kind of, you know, natural creator. But, that you know, Christians and these natural religious folks were all in the same category. They're all deists in that sense. Um, but now, he said, deists are classed with atheists. Deists are it, kind of the skeptical or the critical side of deism was being highlighted, and they were being pushed beyond the pale. It wasn't – they were not being classed, in other words, as religious believers. They were being classed with atheists as religious skeptics. And of course, deism really combines some aspects of faith and some as- aspects of skepticism. Deism was often talked about as people who believed in some sort of creator God, but did not believe in the divinity of Christ, did not believe in the divine inspiration of the scriptures, um, and did not believe in the the teachings of the church, the the Christian churches had any special purview 
or any special um, you know access to revelation. They, and they mostly talked about using man's natural faculties, especially reason, to uh, discern moral truths by looking at nature. That's you know basic kind of thumbnail sketch of how deism was understood. But again, I'm really interested in the kind of political valences that these terms had at the time and, and how they were kind of thrown about and used in argument. One of the arguments that you make is that deism uh, failed to become institutionalized, to build an institution around that idea, and that it was superseded by other non-Orthodox uh, uh, churches or movements who could sell themselves as religions. And you talk about like the New Jerusalem Church, the Universalist, Spiritualist later, who uh, had more success at establishing themselves as a you know viable belief system. Why is that? Yes, that's right. I, I think, well, the usual answer to a why, why didn't organized deism survive? And, and, you know, there was small groups, um, mostly in Northeastern cities in the late um, 1790s, mostly, uh, and into the early 19th century, led by Elihu Palmer and others, inspired by Tom Paine, who were trying to institutionalize deism as a kind of natural religion, kind of uh, an alternate to Christianity. It was critical of Christianity, but it's also connected to um, more radical strains of, of Republican politics, Republican with a small r, that is, um, democratic politics, you could say, with a small d, um, more favorable, look, looking more favorably at the French Revolution, supporting the common man, that kind of thing. Um, and most discussions of deism say, well, you know, deism wasn't popular because, you know, at this time it was just absolutely swamped by uh, evangelical revivalism. It was it wasn't emotional enough. It didn't have the same kind of appeal. This religion of reason just didn't, you know, have as much appeal with the common people as as these, you know, Baptists and Methodists and so on. And you know, I don't discount that explanation, but I don't think it's the only explanation. I think we need to look at the efforts to institutionalize deism in the 1790s alongside, as you say, these other groups that were also struggling to institutionalize, that is, struggling to create structures that would maintain them over time um, as organizations, you know, um, bylaws and, um, you know, rules of membership and, you know, ways to own property and all of those things. And this is at a time when, when those kinds of, especially uh, groups like that with any kind of political aspect to them at all, were uh, highly suspect. George Washington, um, in his second term, talked about um, you know self-created societies as suspect in this new America, that the people didn't need to create political clubs um, because they had their representatives speaking for them in Congress. Um, so um, it was already... Um, they already had the kind of card stacked against them when, when they had this kind of political as well as religious agenda connected to them. Other groups um, that I compare them to were able to negotiate and also, frankly, take advantage of laws that allowed them to incorporate as religious societies. The Deists could not, by how the law was defining what a religious society was, couldn't um, get the benefit of incorporation, for example. So this, there was a kind of a legal structure, a political framework that worked against um, the deists that some of these other groups uh, didn't have to work against. Uh, another thing was just in, in the um, 
the kind of t- political debates between the Democrats or the, the you know, Jeffersonian Republicans and the Federalists at that time, um, the DS became mar- marginalized as being, you know, too radical, too j- dangerous. And people like Jefferson, who frankly believed uh, personally in the kind of deist agenda, had to distance himself, as did other politicians, from these m- more radical groups because um, they didn't want to be associated with this a radical critique of religion. So they agreed with their religion, they agreed with their politics, but they became politically toxic. So I think that, you know, the the, the failure of organized deism in the late 19th, 18th and early 19th century is kind of overdetermined in a lot of ways, but it's more than just, oh, they didn't appeal because they talked too much about reason. Uh, I don't think that alone is a sufficient um, explanation. And that's sort of why I look at institutionalization as a process and compare them to the Swedenborgian church, this other fringe group that's very, you know, heterodox for its, for its time and how they, these other groups were able to negotiate this terrain a little bit better than the Deists did. Now, um, the, uh, the religious promoters, the ones who were promoting orthodoxy, Christian religion, were uh, considered skepticism, atheism, deism, any kind of flavor of outside the orthodox Christianity, a threat. A threat not only to religion itself, what they consider true religion, but also a threat to the nation, the society, a breakdown of morals. All kind, they all, they imagined all kinds of of consequences of irreligion. But at the same time, they embraced enlightenment. Many of these people and use uh, tried to use reason uh, against reason. Uh, can you can you talk about about that because I thought that was really interesting. Right. Uh, the um, well, it, uh, as I say, um, and as certainly many other scholars have said as, as well. When, when we talk about the Enlightenment with a capital E, of course, we're using a kind of later historiographical construct. You know, the people at the time didn't say, "Hey, we're living in the Enlightenment," but they did talk about what it meant to be enlightened, and they did talk about. Uh, you know, the values of using reason and studying nature and, you know, what we would call science and um, the dissemination of print and the education of the common man, all of those things that we would associate with the the philosophies of the 18th century philosophs, the, you know, people we would talk about as the Enlightenment. Well, a lot of the um, Christians in the late 18th and in, well into the 19th century embraced all of those values and said, no, no, that's us especially the Protestants who wanted to define themselves against Catholics. They said, no, no, superstition is over there on that side of the fence with the Catholics. We Protestants are against superstition. We are for using reason. You know, Christianity is an eminently reasonable religion. It can stand any tests. We're not afraid to use reason. We're not afraid of science. The Christianity um, and the, the use of reason and science work perfectly well together. So they made those arguments uh, on that side. But, um, you know, when you said that, that they were worried about these fringe groups, these, these anyone stepping kind of outside the bounds of what they saw as Christian faith, um, and even in this society that did not have an established church, they could still make the argument that, look, this is not about our churches. We're not trying to defend our churches and our particular doctrines. We can make the argument on the basis of American citizenship that American citizenship in a republic rests on 
virtue. And the only true way to cultivate a virtuous citizenry, the only way to cultivate a moral society is with real religion. And real religion means a religion rooted in the Old and New Testaments and believing in Jesus. So that's how they could make their their patriotic argument, their their argument that talked about uh, you know, that justified uh, Christian teachings outside of their particular doctrinal commitments to, you know, as Presbyterians, as Episcopalians, as Baptists, and so on. So, uh, what were the, on the other side? What were the charges against religion made by those who were bold enough to express skepticism or doubt or atheism right off? Uh, what were their charges? What were they charging religion for doing? The deist Elihu Palmer, for example, in the, the 1790s, talked about religion as, a, as a, an institution just like the tyrannical monarchy that we had just overthrown. It was this you know, old, corrupt uh, structure that was mostly – it was built on fiction. It was built on falsehood. It was built on, built on you know, deluding the common people, mostly to support um, the pampered few. And they, there was a lot of anti-clericalism involved in this. This whole, these wealthy institutions are just built to sustain, you know, in one case, the aristocracy and the monarchy, in the other case, the, the pampered clergy. And they would say that these are, are twin institutions that need to be attacked. Later reformers um, would often argue in a, in a somewhat different key that they would say um, Francis Wright, for example, in the 1820s and early 1830s. Would, would argue that, you know, religion is fine as, as a private matter. Um, but because, the, especially in a society like ours, religious opinions are so diverse um, and just a matter of taste, they should be left as a private matter. They should be left, you know, in the closet. That when we come together as American citizens, we have to have a different basis upon which we can debate public policy, upon which we can debate public education. And you know, we need to avoid the arguments between Protestants and Catholics or among Protestants or between Christians and Jews or between believers and unbelievers. All of those things should be irrelevant to how we function as American citizens. And so she was basically arguing for what we would call, you know, a secular understanding of American society, not trying to erase religion completely, but just leave it to, you know, someone's private predilections of, you know, oh, you like ice cream, you like modern art, and you like uh, Christianity. You know, these things, as long as you just leave it out of the public sphere, it can be fine. Um, a later reformer, a still later one, uh, Ernestine Rose in the 1850s, um, was arguing that for women's rights and talking about, well, Christianity and, you know, Judeo-Christianity, actually, because her own roots were Jewish, is the review uh, the, the roots of patriarchy and all the things that, that our modern society has absorbed about the second class status of women are absolutely rooted right in the Bible. You know, look at the story of Genesis, look at Eve being, you know, created from Adam's rib as his helpmate and not as his equal. All of this stuff has been so um, round into our consciousness from the time we were children and it's all rooted in the Bible and to free ourselves from it, to, to really um, embrace liberty as Americans, we have to free ourselves completely um, from this old-fashioned um, ancient religion, this superstition that doesn't make any sense anymore. 
Um, so different uh, skeptics attacked different aspects of religion and did so for different purposes. Um, but I think overall they would say that um, that religious truth claims, especially Christians, but other ones as well, um, just didn't hold up. They didn't believe that the Bible was inspired revelation and they would dip into, you know, the new biblical criticism that would support support that stance. They didn't believe that the the feelings and the emotions that people who had um, undergone evangelical conversion experience, for example, um, they didn't believe that these things testified to any kind of supernatural truth, that these were just, you know, kind of a psychological experience. Uh, they didn't believe um, that the wisdom of the church uh, accrued over all these centuries amounted to much of anything because it was, you know, um, a, a lot of falsehoods. So they would attack the same kinds of things, but sometimes for different sort of political purposes and also see, you know, a different place that religion may or may not have in a truly enlightened society. You know, I'm kind of wondering how the divisions between the Christian churches, you know, you've got the Methodists and the Baptists and the Episcopalians and the Presbyterians and Congregationalists and you've got Unitarians. You've got so many different factions of Christianity that probably did not work for the favor of, of Christianity because, hey, you guys don't even agree on your, among yourselves about what you believe. So I wanted to ask you about how much of uh, Christian churches, other Christian churches blamed Calvinism and the staunch, you know, Presbyterian Calvinism uh, for uh, irreligion, for doubt, for skepticism, for people falling away from the church when they had been raised in it. Oh, they absolutely did. In fact, the, the Christian polemicists in the different denominations thought that this was more of a problem, that there weren't enough Oh, yes, people were still reading Tom Paine, and yes, there were some newspapers and free thinkers out there agitating, especially in cities in the 1830s and 40s. But more than that, they they blamed each other. They blamed themselves, their own doctrinal arguments, their own theological disputes would tend to generate skepticism. Um, sometimes they, they would use the slippery slope argument against each other. Um, you know, I, I, you bring up Calvinists, and yes, the, the the free will Baptists, the the Arminian Methodists, who were who didn't believe in Calvinism, thought that you know bad theology was the cause of people falling away from religion. That well, of course they fell away because they were being taught this ab- absurd theology that they were powerless before you know this powerless sinners in the hands of an angry God, and they could do nothing and just had to wait for this magical lightning strike of the Holy Spirit. Um, that, that that false theology, the people knew in their bones was false, and they, they would tend to reject all religion instead of just rejecting Calvinism. Now, on the other side, of course, the Calvinists who thought that they were not preaching Calvinism, they, they would say they were preaching, you know, the gospel, what Jesus actually said. They would argue that, no, that these, these new um, preachers of free will were the ones that were um, – overvaluing, you know, um, human ability. They were flattering um, the ability of humans to save themselves. And by by leaving biblical truth, they were leading people astray and leading them toward, eventually toward um, skepticism and atheism in that way. In all sorts of arguments, you could see, you know, opponents using the slippery slope arguments. You know, you have 
diverge from these, these fundamental theological principles, and in doing so, we're going to take us right down to the atheist hell. And you, you see that a lot, and you also see the, the recognition that these arguments themselves were helping to fuel skepticism. Which makes me, yeah, makes me wonder whether, you know, at this time that you're talking about, it was a myth, Methodist were really uh, growing exponentially. I mean, Methodist uh, was spreading all over, overtaking uh, a lot of Calvinism and Episcopalians. And I'm wondering uh, how much uh, the, the part of it, the rejection of Calvinism was, and this is not in your book, but it just popped in my mind, how much of it was because it, it really did not uh affirm individual effort, individual free will, you know, to choose. And that's really what the nation, a young nation needed was a, a religion where people felt like they were really could control their destiny. Yeah. I, I, um, I deal with that a little bit in my second chapter, which is focused on Methodists, um, Sarah Jones and um, Jeremiah Minter in particular, who were uh, two, very devout Methodists in late 18th century Virginia. And, and I, I address the notion that you just, you just um, discussed um, Nathan Hatch's democratization of American Christianity and around published around 1990, made a very strong case that, you know, this new uh, American sense of self is emerging and um, religion almost had to shape to meet it, you know, valuing more the free will of the individual and shaping his or her own destiny and all those kinds of things. Um, and I think what I try to argue in that chapter is that there's a lot more to Methodism and a lot of things, uh, countervailing forces, even within Methodism. I don't really think that that is a good enough explanation for the rise of Methodism itself. And I show how um, that these two people who were extraordinarily devout were actually constrained by their church and constrained by the, the kind of structures that the church tried to put around them to contain what, what both Minter and Jones would have said um, was the, the expression of this, um, this new free will that had been given them by their experience of Christ. Um, so I'm not sure that the, those, that, those American values of free will and individualism and so on are really the engine behind a lot of the religious growth in groups like Methodism and uh, the free will Baptist at the time. It's part of it, but I, I don't think it accounts for all of it. Um, and I also think that um, there were limits to those limits to those um, expressions within these different churches. Um, and as I show with Jeremiah Minter, when he stops arguing with other Methodists, because he eventually leaves the Methodist church because he felt like they were too constraining, when he stops arguing with them and tries to address American citizens at large, he realizes that he has to go back to the ground of arguing against the skeptics, of arguing against Tom Paine. That if, if among Methodists you can take for granted a belief in the divinity um, of the Old and New Testaments as divine revelation – and then just argue about other things, the, argue more about the validity of your own personal religious experience. Once you step out of that evangelical subculture and address the larger culture at large, he realized that he had to go back to square one in a lot of ways to make the argument for the divinity of the scriptures themselves. So he 
goes back to that basic dialogue, which is runs through my book about um, the believers and the skeptics. And also, you would probably agree that the Baptists and Methodists were growing also because they were less elitist than the Presbyterians in terms of they were addressing more the common man. Well, that's that's absolutely true. Uh, they were less elitist, and some of them even made more of that. There's a a branch that um, I talk about in that second chapter of of Republican Methodists who break away from the the larger Methodist Episcopal Church that really emphasize that Republican and anti-elite um, aspect of it. They, um, they broke away in part because they didn't like Bishop Francis Asbury um, and his kind of what they would see as a kind of tyrannical control of the church. But we have to be careful when we talk about anti-elitism. They were certainly against the old elite, that is the college-educated, wealthy, white-wigged-wearing um, you know, congregationalist and Presbyterian and Anglican ministry. But there is a, a new sort of elite that grows up, even if it's taken from common men themselves within the church. The Methodist church, after all, is a hierarchy. It's based on hierarchical authorities, and it's run by bishops. And that is in part why it's so successful. Um, other other churches that played the the democracy card harder, uh, who, who wanted to empower the common people more, were not as successful as the Methodist Episcopal Church. So I think we have to look at both a, a, a balance of these rhetorical appeals to the common man and to individuals shaping their own destiny and the kinds of structures of power and authority that these successful groups built to kind of reinscribe a different sort of elite, an elite based on um, preaching ability based on the structure of the church itself. In Sarah Jones's case, based on her reputation for, you know, the, um, praying and fasting, this kind of uh, an elitism of the the super pious in some ways. Okay. Well, there's a, a another thing I want to go back to that I kind of skipped over, which had to do, we talked about how there was this fear among the religious promoters that uh, that. Skepticism, doubt, threatening the future of the nation in terms of its moral fiber and virtue. And how much of this was fear of skepticism and doubt tied to the reputation of the French Revolution, the negative reputation of the French Revolution? Oh, I think, well, I I think they would have had it anyway, but that becomes absolutely their, um, you know, their, their object lesson. They would again and again through the 19th century, they would point that this is what happens. You see, this is what happens. We've, we've run this historical, historical experiment. You know, you can talk about, you know, your you know, highfalutin enlightenment ideals, but if you really put them in practice, at least the radical form of the enlightenment, if you really put it in practice, you get the terror. You get the blood in the streets. You get the guillotines wielded out. We've seen it. And that's, that could happen in America too if we're not careful. The French Revolution was their, their strongest historical argument for the, the value of what they were saying, that without Christianity as the basis of American citizenship, that the, the atheistic French Revolution is you know, our fate too. So they use that again and again. Uh, and their opponents on the other side would say, look, the, yes, the, the French Revolution took a bad turn and um, things went wrong, but the things that went wrong weren't, were not because of the values that we're talking about. We're not because of the values of using reason and, um, you know, putting religion back in its place as just a, a, a private pursuit and, you know, disempowering 
uh, religion as a political force. That's not what what was doing. That's not what caused the harm in the French Revolution. So it's an argument about the French Revolution itself, too. And that's why uh, my first section is called Revolutions, plural, because I want to look at both the effects of the American Revolution on religion in America, but also the effects of the the French Revolution, at least rhetorically, at least as uh, as an example that they were had to argue around as they moved through the next decades of the 19th century. Now, another another group that's kind of interesting here is the Unitarians, because they were trying to straddle the line between the excesses of Calvinism and unacceptable deism. So can you talk about the Unitarians and where they fall in this? And they seem to be kind of kind of people who uh, nobody really finds that endearing because they're kind of wishy-washy. You know, they're not really skeptics, but they're not Calvinist either. Right. Well, uh, uh, th- their opponents, and, and I was surprised, you know, I had, I had read other things for years about the Unitarians too, but f- coming at them from this angle and also by adding another character into the debates that isn't usually there. I mean, usually uh, the, the Unitarian controversy and the later Transcendentalist controversy are, are all really depicted um, as an argument among these different New England Protestants. And I wanted to introduce this, uh, this other fellow named Richard Hildreth, who also stepped into the debate as a religious skeptic and who was basically saying, look, a pox on both your houses to the Orthodox Calvinists on the one hand and the Unitarians turned transcendentalists on the other hand. He says, you know, um, American progress and the progress of human civilization did not depend on Christianity. In fact, it only really gathered steam once we were, started to wean ourselves away from the, the, the um, you know, more deleterious effects of Christianity. So I wanted to put his voice into this, what is usually this um, kind of binary argument between uh, the Unitarians and the, what in New England was called Orthodox, meaning, meaning the Calvinists. But the Unitarians thought of themselves as, of course, real Christians. If, if you're a thunder in the background, that's because uh, I'm in the middle of a thunderstorm here. It's okay. That wasn't just for a dramatic effect. Um, the, the Unitarians thought of themselves as as real Christians who were taking seriously the new biblical criticism that was examining the the texts, the original texts in the original languages, um, and they argued um, against taking the Bible literally, um, against even resting the faith entirely on. Uh, the authenticity of the scriptures as a divine revelation. They, in, in fact, um, and now I'm moving from Unitarians more to the, their, the, the next generation, the transcendentalists, who would argue more about the internal experience of, of the individual as being the, the source of Christ, the real, the true source of Christian truth. And the stories we read in the, the Bible are just kind of validate what we already can know from our own experience. Um, and of course the, the, Orthodox folks argued against the Unitarians, and they called them, this is the new version of skepticism. This is just a new form of infidelity. This is a new way to leave Christianity behind. The Unitarians call themselves Christians. They say they're, they still revere the Bible. They, stay, they say they still admire Jesus, but basically they're cutting the heart out of what true Christianity is. And they're doing it um, just as thoroughly as you know, Tom Paine and Elihu Palmer and the the the, deist, the skeptical deists in the previous generation, but it's more devious because they're doing it within churches that are still calling themselves Christian. And that's an even greater danger because they're kind of hollowing out the faith from within. 
Um, and that by you know the 1850s and 1860s was, was thought to be a more profound danger to the future of American Christianity than the kind of frontal assault by um, free thinkers like um, Robert Dale Owen or Ernestine Rose or people like that. These, these kind of the hollowing out, the kind of ultra liberalization of Christianity from within that takes on board a lot of the old critiques of faith that had been promoted by previous free thinkers, and yet still tries to package them within something they're calling Christianity. That, the Orthodox thought, was very dangerous. Now, there's another thing, too, that I want to talk about was this, this is all happening when uh, the meaning of religious freedom or the bounds of religious freedom, the parameters by which religious freedom is going to work within, are, is being tested. So how do these how do these all these debates affect in all these splinter groups that are you know trying to create alternative belief systems all kind of negotiate the limits of religious freedom and the relationship between the church the churches or and the state Well there were different strategies to try to negotiate that and and it's dependent upon you know where you were or dependent on which forum you were trying to operate in um, you know, some of, there were still some legal disabilities to people who, for example, when you went to court um, and if you didn't in, in many states, if you couldn't swear, take an oath in your belief in um, future punishments, um, then you couldn't testify. So basically the courts were shut to you if you didn't have a particular religious belief. Um, so some of them tried to argue against those things, try to work for laws that would broaden out and be more accepting of of more heterodox religious opinions other people would would you know go off and form reformed communities um with their own kinds of faith or their own kinds of non-faith um you know reform um i i talk about you know um, francis wright trying to do this kind of hiving off of new harmony the um the robert owen experiment um, and there are sort of many examples of religious communities try to do that. Um, but Mormons are an example of, of a group that tried to, has a, a heterodox faith that is, you know, considered to be unacceptable to the Christian majority. And they're basically driven out of the country and establish themselves in Utah under their own rules. Um, so there are different strategies you, you, that the, these people tried to use. They could be quiet. They could go to church and pretend that they weren't doubters. They could... Um, go somewhere else and and try to you know live with other like-minded people. They could try carefully to argue against what they considered to be the um, you know the unfair social treatment and the unfair political and legal treatment of people who didn't kind of toe the main line. Um, and at the same time, you have people on the other side who were saying, "Well, you know, we don't have an established church. It's true in the United States of America, but we, you know, there have to be some people over the pale. You know, we're not going to have human sacrifices in our town squares. We have to have some rules. We have to have some moral basis of belief that we can uh, join together as American citizens that we can all agree on." And they would try to figure out ways to do that. Sometimes it was just in terms of social shunning that they, you know, oh, you find out that, you know, someone is a, you know, that that merchant in town isn't a Christian, doesn't go to church. Well, we're not going to, we're not going to go to his shop, just things like that. Um, so they try to, to do that. And they tried to work for larger moral reforms in their societies that bring a Christian agenda 
um, to the country at large for like um, getting the mails the, the, to stop running on Sundays. It was a, a big um, a big movement that failed. Uh, but then after that, you know, slavery, anti-slavery. There were some um, skeptics like Richard Hildreth who were prominent in the anti-slavery movement, but there were an awful lot of devoted Christians who were prominent in the anti-slavery movement as well. And of course, there were an awful lot of um, pro-slavery Christians at the same time. So you see it kind of breaking down in both ways. It's, it's Yeah, it's fairly interesting because all these problems that you're talking about through your entire book are things that are even happening today. Some of the same arguments and the same debates are, are, are occurring today. So it's like we've never really gotten over this. But anyway, I wanted to ask you, there's one last question I want to talk about because uh, there's so much I could talk about. I've got a long list of questions. So I'm not going to get to them all. But one of the things that the the, Christ, the religious promoters were saying that um, they try to line up faith with prosperity and economic growth and doubt with poverty and tragedy. If you if you are a believer and you you know you are a good Christian, you you will be blessed. And if you aren't, this is what's going to happen to you. You're going to end up poor and you know and with tragedy in your life. And I was wondering, and then you kind of begin talking about, which I think was the most interesting part of the book for me because I haven't read too much about it, was the, the alignment of Protestantism with capitalism. Now, of course, there was no single alignment. There were, there, you know, many different kinds of Christians took many different positions. There were, there were some Christian reformers who thought that capitalism was, you know, just crushing people and, and had to be reformed and had to be rethought. Um, a lot of the the mainstream and by say mid 19th century mainstream evangelical churches um, were against any kind of systematic or structural reforms of the economic system. They thought, as you, as you just said, that the, the basic line was, well, a lot of the problems with, with the poor are, are kind of self-inflicted that it's, it's rare. Yes. Yes. You know, sometimes it happens, but it's rare to see um, poverty that isn't because of, you know, someone's intemperance, someone's drinking, that, that what people needed most and what the whole economic um, system needed most was conversion. Um, that, that was really the central reform. We don't need to create all these other reform societies. We don't need to rethink gender relations. We don't need to rethink the workplace. We don't need to support labor. All of those things pale in significance to the central need to embrace Jesus. And once you do that, you know, your moral life is it's entirely reoriented, and that moral reoriented life also will be one that will be, will be helpful to you. It doesn't mean you'll be rich, but you should, you should at least be comfortable. So um, in a lot of ways, this did work with the kind of laissez-faire, um, you know, capitalism that, that wanted just the, the, the invisible hand of the marketplace to almost be seen as the invisible hand of God's providence moving things around. Now, there were also skeptics on the other side of this. I mean, Thomas Cooper, one of my uh, leading skeptics in the book, he appears in two different chapters, um, was also for a kind of laissez-faire capitalism. Um, he was against uh, most forms of organized religion. He was a, a thoroughgoing religious skeptic. He wrote against, you know, believing in the Bible and all the rest of that. Um, but he was on the same page in terms of this kind of conservative economic policy. So it's not at all that... Um, the kind of skepticism versus faith dichotomy breaks down um, in terms of a simple, uh, you know, pro or anti-capitalist 
Uh, although the, you know, there have been some historians who have tried to make that case, but I don't see that at all. Um, I see um, kind of across the board people making arguments where you can see how they determine a logic that, that aligns their faith with their particular views on you know, socioeconomic conditions. Um, but you can also see the reverse operating just as well. Well, you know, uh, Christopher, this is a really big book. And uh, it's fascinating. There's so much in it, and we can't even begin to talk about it all. But which, what would be the takeaway for the listener of this podcast, or what would you want a reader to take away, the main point of your book? I think the main points of the book that um, the, um, the American religion was not simply a product of a Puritan past um, that, oh, we just inherited this stuff from, you know, the pilgrims when they came over on the Mayflower, and that's why we're religious in the way we are. Or it, it wasn't simply a product of the separation of church and state, which created this, what some have called a kind of free market of religious competition that characterized um, religion in the 19th century. Um, I think it was because of choices people made. It wasn't just forces operating behind people's backs. And it was in part this this continuing dialogue. As you said yourself, a lot of these questions are still with us today. We still debate these things today. We still argue about them, not in precisely the same ways because we're not living in the 18th and the 19th century. But this is an ongoing dialogue that had broad, not just personal, but social, intellectual, and political ramifications. And a lot of the um, how people understood the Panic of 1837, how they understood the War of 1812, how they certainly understood the Civil War, are all shaped by these um, larger conditions, and all shaped by these um, by this ongoing dialogue. So I would like uh, readers to just pay attention to that dialogue and and see how it's rooted in personal experience of these different people. Well, Christopher Grasso, thank you. You've been very generous with your time. Well, thank you very much for this opportunity. I've enjoyed it. Thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another edition of New Books in American Studies. This podcast is a special edition in cooperation with the Society for U.S. Intellectual History. This is your host, Lillian Barger. <laughs>